This is Becoming Her, a podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so um, welcome to Becoming Her, the podcast. Um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to everybody, and so take it away. He sounds good. Um, my name is Alana Frogley, and um, I have been in touch with Stevie for probably over the last year. Um, I've done some writing for the blog, and writing has been a huge source of healing for me. Um just to be able to put my words out into the world and have them believed is mm. um, I think it has been, been the beginning of everything for me. And so, and now to speak my words out into the world and have mm. them heard. I mean, it's just another level of um, healing and yeah. I mean, of course there's scary parts and there's vulnerability involved with that, but um, healing is a not, Healing is a messy thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so let's see. I was with my ex for uh, on and off for about two years. And uh, I met him at a time. I had just finished my yoga teacher training. So one of my my jobs is a yoga teacher. And when you go through a yoga teacher training, it has the effect sometimes of really opening you up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know if I, my heart was prepared to kind of uh, reemerge back into regular society, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was at a place where I was very open and vulnerable and, um, you know, just ripe for, um, not to say that any of it was my fault, but um, uh, he was into that. (laughs) And I've actually heard that a lot from survivors um, that they, when they met their their ex or their ex abuser that they were in a particularly vulnerable spot for one reason or another, whether that was like the death of someone they knew or some other trauma they had experienced or some other, you know, situation that they had been through where they felt particularly like raw. So I think that that will probably resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I can definitely relate to that. And um, yeah, I mean, when you go through 200 hours of training as a yoga teacher, um, you, you pull up a lot of layers and there's mm-hmm. so many things that are being processed and, um, whatever, for whatever reason, that energy is very attractive to certain individuals. Um, and so that's when we met, it was uh, a few summers ago. And, and then I think a lot of other survivors could relate to this. The relationship moved very quickly. Yeah. Um, we moved in after a couple weeks, um, He had a daughter around the age of the kids that I work with during, like I work at an elementary school and um, it just felt like family really, really fast. And I wanted family so badly at that, at that time in my life that um, I, my brain was overlooking um, the details, I guess I was, yeah, it was a fast world. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, you know, um, there were lots of red flags in terms of one of the main ones I found in reflection was his, um, isolation from his own family. I mean, that was, and I, what I'm, from what I've read that 
is a pretty common and uh yeah so anyways throughout the course of the relationship we moved in very quickly and I became in hindsight he became what turned out to be the live-in nanny that he needed at the time while he was going through a custody battle with his ex (laughs) so and I really appreciate you bringing up kids because I think that's a huge factor for a lot of people whether it's stepkids or kids that they feel responsible for or their own children with this person but I think that's uh it plays a big role it does and in my conversation with my mom since that relationship you know, she often reflects back to me, you know, and I really doubt you would have stayed mm. as long as you did, had it not been for her. Right. And I completely agree. It's um, children get into our hearts. And, and I think I had this belief inside of myself that if I just stick around long enough and I just love her hard enough and I just love him hard enough, then um, that can heal the family system. When in, in reality, those patterns are very deeply ingrained. Yeah. And it's just not that simple. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then kind of what happened from there? So you guys moved in, you've got this little family unit together. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the, one of the biggest turning points in, in the middle of the relationship was right before Christmas time. So he's from quite a ways away from like where I'm from and uh, like more of a country boy kind of thing. And his mom actually was able to stay in touch with him, I think mostly for the granddaughter. Hmm. But she came over at Christmas time. She like made a big meal for us. And one day when he was out, she sat me down and she said, Alana, you don't, I've seen what like my son does to women. You don't want to stick around. And it was like, it rattled me to my core because (laughs) yes, it was. And I, I was I didn't know what to do with that information, you know, because there's different dynamics at play between mothers and sons. And I didn't know what kind of relationship fully that she had had with, you know, his ex, uh, like his daughter's mother. Right. Um, That started to unfold as time went on. But of course, he had spun things in a certain way that made me believe uh, certain things that just weren't true. (laughs) <laughs> for or example they're somehow the victim in the situation I think yes. that's really common yeah very much so yeah. and you know he his unfortunately his ex had gone through a really hard time and she ended up getting a couple of DUIs and um, that was really great fodder for him to paint her as the the bad the person who was the perpetrator and right. um, as the reason that the relationship ended and I mean who wouldn't believe that you know right. like a, a person who got two DUIs, one of them with a child in the car at the time. And it was right. like, you know, that seemed like good enough evidence for me at the time to believe that he was the victim in the situation. Right. Um, when in reality, it was a lot more complicated than that. Oh, yeah. And, and I'd, I'd like to point out too, that a lot of victims in these situations self-medicate with drugs or alcohol, yep. and then it can become an addiction or a substance abuse issue. But um when someone is struggling with substance abuse, it makes it that much easier to victim blame them. And so very I think, much so. Yeah. And that actually came into play for me. So when I met him, I was four years sober and he was not. Hmm. And um, I totally agree with what you just said. I think that I think that those kinds of people know what to look for. If somebody has struggled with substance abuse issues in the past, it makes them a really good target for being manipulated. Oh, yeah. 
and they'll yeah. they'll intentionally try to get that person out of sobriety or if yeah. they've never struggled with a substance abuse problem before they'll try to get them hooked on some sort of substance in order to keep them dependent or to make them feel like they're the bad guy exactly exactly and um yeah so that was very much uh I was living in a world that was completely painted by him Mm. and it took me like very long time to even begin to come out of the fog I mean I wrote a piece on the blog called coyote that talks a lot about that disorienting feeling when you're in the middle of it so imagine you're in the middle you're living what you think is this happy little life like it seems like it came very easily which could have been a red flag in hindsight um and then you have the grandmother you know kind of reach in pull you out in a second say hell like give you a little shake with reality and and you actually don't want to hear it at that point unfortunately at least I just wasn't ready to hear it or not in a way that um, would cause me to act on it anyhow so because it would have meant you know upturning your entire life it would have meant having to change everything and that's so scary yeah big time um so that was uh, a really interesting experience um And I stuck around, you know, I stuck around during that period. And um, he also worked for the film industry. So people who work in the film industry, they have really long shifts. Right. And I was at home a lot on my own with his daughter. And he was apparently at work. But, you know, in hindsight, again, like, it's uh, who only he knows. Right. You know, only he knows. Other strange things started to happen. Um, one night we were all in the living room and I think the speaker system had somehow picked up on his phone. Uh, and it was, it, yeah, it went into the living room where his daughter and I were mm. and he was in the bedroom and a woman's voice came over the speakers. It was very fast. And I, it was, you know, it was so quick that I, I was also at a point in that stage during the relationship where I wasn't fully, he had, he had me so off kilter because of gaslighting and all these other tactics that make you feel like your perception isn't real that, uh, at first I dismissed it. And then I thought, no, I'm going to go in there. And I say like, what was that? Like, right. who was that? Cause I also heard him yell from the other room. And then of course, when I go in to talk to him about it, it's all, you know, a figment of my imagination. And um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think even in non-abusive, healthy relationships, we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Right. And so yeah. if you were, it's like, oh, well, no, it's probably just someone he works with or, you know, it's so easy to minimize yeah. those. Even when your yeah. guts are telling you something, something's off. But then yeah. this person has trained you to n- not listen to your gut. Or to be afraid to try and, like, stand up for those instincts and, like, confront them about them. So there, it's just, like, a yeah. lose-lose situation. Exactly. Like, either, you know, you're crazy. Right. And you're, like, making stuff up. Or, um, you know, oh, why do you always want to start arguments kind of things like that when in reality you're just trying to communicate. Right. Yeah. So that was another weird, like, and the feeling that goes along with that afterwards, you know, more and more kind of weird little things like that would happen. I still even remember one of the first nights that I spent over at his place, like uh, uh, 
he had asked me to move my car from uh, out away from the front of the house because out of respect for another person who was coming to pick up her things from, from his patio, <laughs> you know, like, um, I mean, that happens, right? People have short dating stints, sure. whatever. And so now that I look at it, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. It all adds up to a whole lot of strange behavior. But in the but, moment, it's easy to write off as like a normal, just like whatever thing, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, you know, we've started dating really quickly. So maybe he's just like wrapping up something with somebody else or, you know, it's easy yeah. to, to make excuses in the moment. And then it's and not it, until all of that collectively piles up over time that you can look at it as like a body of evidence. But in each individual like sliver of time, it's like, oh, right. Yeah. Well, I can think of an excuse for this, you know? Totally. And well, yeah, that's what I was even going to put, I wrote in some of my stuff to prep was that, you know, people can have any myriad of reasons for being assholes. Like right. just because someone has a reason, you know, doesn't mean that it's acceptable, but mm-hmm. it's amazing how many rationalizations uh, he was able to come up with that I was like, oh yeah, hmm. be- because he has a reason, it must be true or I wanted it to be true. Mm-hmm. Or a combination you know, of both. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And um, I also like to think of myself as very open-minded. And as I've gone along since I left him, um, I understand that what that at the time it actually was translating to other people was someone who doesn't have any boundaries. Mm. So we can still be open-minded and accepting of other people, people's lifestyles without having it to be like, you know, without having to them to be our intimate partner, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And when I hear that, I think of like people who are empaths, you know? Yeah. Where it's so yeah. easy to go into someone else's headspace and into their emotions. And it kind of, yeah. you like forget where you stop and the other person begins at some, sometimes, you know? And so when somebody is giving you these, you know, excuses, it's easy. It's like really hard to like, know if they're true or not because you want to believe them because you can like see them you know as this whole complete person and just kind of like go into their I don't know it's very it's a hard thing to articulate but I I yeah I empathy that like deep deep empathy for another person it really like resonates yeah and as I got to know him better you know so I he found out that my his mom had had that conversation with me and he took mm-hmm. me out for sushi one night, which is like, he rarely took me out on dates. And so that should have been like, but, um, being nice. <laughs> yeah, being so nice. Totally. Like, why are you taking me out for sushi in a movie? This is fun. Right. <laughs> um, so our relationship had revolved around like, you know, being at the home and cooking and things like that. Um, and so, he spun a web for me about his family's past and I still have no idea what parts of it were true. And I mean, I would actually have to sit down with probably his other family members, but he shared with me that there was actually some sexual abuse in his family when he was younger. And so that's why his mom had a negative bent towards him because he was angry with her for having allowed, basically he, she said that there had, he said that there had been, this is going to be kind of heavy, that there had been um, incest between his brother and sister. And um, that the reason his mom, you know, pulled me aside and and warned me about him was because um, he had called her out about their history. And so 
yeah, it's uh, it would be really hard for me to imagine in that moment not having believed him. Right. Yeah. And and it's so layered, you know, there's yeah. so many layers there. It's and so many versions of people's like individual truths in any given situation yeah. that like it, that absolutely could be one part of many parts, you know, that don't make up the complete story. Totally. And well, one of the things I was going to say too um, around that was one of the main things I've taken from this is that, you know, just because someone has a traumatic history um, doesn't ever give them excuse to be abusive. Right. Um, And like you said, as a highly empathic person, it was easy for me to really be drawn into his worldview and his basically he lived his whole life out from a position of him feeling himself making who knows making himself but feeling that he was a victim of his own life and his own circumstance he would involve himself in um a lot of first nations activism which is a really good way to make yourself look like not a predator right uh he would he even volunteered his time to take footage at um women's marches and um marches for missing missing women and so you know, who's not going to trust somebody like that? And makes it harder for you internally and externally to claim any kind of victimization. Exactly. Because internally, you're going to be like, oh, well, he is this great guy who does, yeah. who is an ally for these causes. And then yeah. externally, if you were to go tell somebody, like, I think he's abusing me, they might be like, yeah. this one? No. No, he's, but he's, he's so, on the women's march. Right. He's so woke, you know? So it's just like it reinforces that isolation. Yes. And it also is so rattling because it makes you see me have seen just how deep the manipulation can go. Yeah. That public persona versus that private persona. Right. And I mean, and that brings up another point uh, around that I wanted people, any listeners of this to know that abusers are not abusive about 90% of the time. Um if they were abusive a hundred percent of the time, they wouldn't be able to continue on abusing because they would be in jail. Right. But the abuse happens away from eyes, away from ears, from other people. And um, that it's that dissonance between the public life and the private life. That is absolutely the most crazy making, I think for a person who's in that situation. Yeah. And um and that it kind of dispels some of these myths we have around domestic violence, that it's like they can't control themselves or they have yeah. anger management issues. And it's like, well, if they can control themselves 90% of the time and be one person in front of a group of people or society or their community, and then they wait and become another person behind closed doors, that actually suggests that they have an incredibly high level of control. It's not that they can't control themselves. Um, cause otherwise you're right. Everyone would know and they would be behaving that way at large in the community, but they don't. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think at our core, we, a lot of us, I think we would like to believe that humans are inherently good. Yes. And that was a belief that I, I, I wanted, I carried around for a very long time. And, and especially like I mentioned, just coming out of the yoga teacher training, um, I was feeling very connected to humanity because I had gone through this very um, transformative period of time with another group of people and we'd all held space for each other. And 
And it led me to believe that that could be generalized to the greater population. Unfortunately, mm. it's just not true. And um, I think that that has been the most transformative aspect of this letting go of that belief. Mm. And, and it's not to say that I want to go out and be afraid all the time because I, and I did go through that for a while where I was in a hypervigilant state. I mean, I think just on a survival biological level, we just do. That's just how we're wired. That's our actual and, biological makeup and chemistry after survival. a traumatic let's, experience. Yes. Yes. Let's keep on living. Yes. Um, so my nervous system is going to jump at many different things um, that are actually not going to be harmful, but you start to feel this level of paranoia. Um, but eventually, you know, the, the nervous system settles and you start to encounter people who do have um, a, a strong sense of self, who do want to live in the truth, who do value community. Um, but I still, even at the end of that, had to let go of the idea that we are all just inherently good because it's just not that simple. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody has the answer to that, but it is, you're yeah. right. it's not this black and white issue. There's so many layers there. There's so many layers. Yeah. And I think a lot of it goes back to attachment. You know, I've studied quite a bit to do with children and, and just because you can understand why a person is a certain way. Um, I had to come to terms with knowing that doesn't mean that they deserve a place in your life and that you can Uh, still have empathy for someone and have good boundaries which is so hard to establish it's tricky that's a really good way to put that yeah Yeah, because yeah and I I couldn't have said it any better I think that that's a really important lesson but for whatever reason um people who are brought up in my generation I mean I was born in the mid 80s our parents and I'm not I can't make this a sweeping statement but I think parents are doing a different doing it differently now, but I don't know that it was necessarily valued as much that we would be empowered in terms of how to communicate and how to set boundaries, even from young children, like even in terms of our own body, like um, even just children knowing that other people need to ask permission to touch them. Like they can't, you know, some people still, I think, and it's not with bad intentions, but they'll still just hug without permission or things like that. And that communicates so many things to us as young people that our body isn't necessarily our own. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, as part of the reason I started, uh, I also teach yoga to kids and oh, just past year, yeah. able to start a business called Empower, which is kind of cool because it's very connected with uh, part of the We Are Her um mandate and one of the main things I want children to know is that you know other people's reactions to you setting a healthy boundary that's their shit yep (laughs) it's not yours to take on it might feel really crappy in the moment to and to see the look on a person's face when they experience whatever rejection is going on within them when you tell them no and it's not even like big stuff sometimes it's just like no, you can't have my time that day or, or my gum no. or my pencil or yeah. I don't want to play with you on the playground or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And like, I actually get to decide how I spend my time during this time. Right. That's why, well, I never force friendships. I mean, because a, there's no point, but um, yeah, like I think 
I would like to see more kids being taught that, um, you know, your, your no means no. And like you said, even if it comes to just to little small things, like, no, you can't borrow my eraser. And, and, oh yeah, we can still be friends after that. Right. Right. Which are conversations I don't think we're having at all with kids. And um, the organization that I work for is big into prevention by working with young people. And so as like a prevention specialist, I'm always going to schools and telling people like, hey, we need to like talk to the kindergartners. And they're like, you know, like, no, 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 no. About like (laughs) empathy and and conflict resolution and how to be a good friend and you know, you know, how to tell people and like emotional literacy and like understand how you're feeling. And but people don't understand how all of those issues relate to something like domestic violence or sexual violence. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, it's just safety, you know, because and that was one of the other points I wanted to express about what I've learned throughout this journey is that uh, boundaries keep everyone safe like even the person that is being told no right it's for them too right yeah and that it in turn empowers them because then yes. your, your responsibility for another person only goes so far and then they have to be empowered and make decisions based on their own values and autonomy on how to react to that and and yeah. so like once you like try to be responsible for another person you're also stealing their autonomy and your own you know and like giving up your own autonomy and taking over theirs it's like that boundary is is so healthy but we don't really talk about what that looks like practically at all no especially not for kindergarten there's and but yeah like you said it can start with such simple things as I have things that belong to me and you have things that belong to you and um I can tell you when I don't want something. Um, I think another thing that another factor that played heavily into my, my worldview that, you know, people are inherently good or that, um, you know, I, I need to somehow bend over backwards in order to avoid um, discomfort um, is that I was brought up in a, a very religious family. And, um, you know, my dad's a Baptist, a retired Baptist minister. And I just wanted to say quickly that, you know, not all, um, you know, how am I going to say this? Not all churches, um, you know, preach sexism and homophobia. You know, there are, there are some out there. Um, I, they're few and far between. However, I have come across them. So I just want to say that, but, um, there's so much implicit bias in, you know, being brought up, especially as a female in, in, in a Christian Um, community that communicates to us that we actually we need to defer to men somehow in order to make certain decisions for us and uh, I think that's played in heavily I mean this year this last year has like it's like unraveling like my whole identity and and this event really um, well series of events really was the catalyst for me beginning to um, deconstruct all of the things that I've been taught and not in a way that, I mean, at first I was angry. I'm not going to lie. Like I, you know, I was quite angry when I really started to feel like I was waking up to, um, to the biases that were being passed on to both my sister and I, which is Um, a healthy part of the process. You don't want to get stuck there, but that's a very fair place to be. 
Exactly. You have to start somewhere. You can't just get to that. Uh, there's a really good quote. It was like, you can't just go like straight from like the fuck yous to like, I love you. Right. Like you have to, you have to go through what can be an extended period of time of discomfort while you're sorting through all of that and yeah. rebuilding and keeping the pieces that you feel are actually yeah. in line with what you actually believe and then leaving the rest. And that can create a lot of conflict. And it takes a lot of work, you know? Yes. And I, I also want to offer like just a little reframe. Sometimes I hear people when they talk about anger, like there's this element of shame associated with it. And sometimes I think it's helpful to think about anger, not as like the pure raw emotion of anger, but this idea of like um, moral outrage. Mm-hmm. So, which is, I don't know, it feels healthier sometimes I think to think about it that way, but that like there are things that people deserve to be morally outraged about when they are immoral. Immoral things are going to stir up strong emotions. And it's so it's not always just like anger or bitterness or vengefulness. Sometimes it's like, yeah, like people deserve to have moral outrage over things that are not okay. Absolutely. And the funny part is like, for those who read the Bible, at this point, I don't feel the need to practice any religion, but I am thankful to have had some kind of um, some kind of a foundation for um, a belief system that maybe wasn't the mainstream, mm. so to speak, um, a spiritual life. And so I do, there's still some things that I can take from the way that I was brought up. Tons of things. Absolutely. One of them, I mean, there's a big passage in the Bible that speaks about when Jesus went into um, one of the temples and he had moral, he had righteous anger. Yes. He had that moral outrage that you're talking about because people were gambling in the place of worship. And for whatever reason, there was, it's, I think it's in society, not just in the church, but in mainstream society, there's this message that if a woman is angry, she's out of control, she's crazy, she's, you know, batshit, all that. Yeah. Yeah. She's just, oh, she must be on that time of the month or whatever, because she's, um, you know, acting out in a way that doesn't fit in line with the whole um, Mother Mary bullshit. Yes. The stereotype. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's funny to have grown up in a place where on the one hand we're being told, oh yeah, like Jesus had this righteous anger and he was, you know, confirmed and it was okay for him to have those feelings, but not for you. Right. There's always um, like a, an element of exclusion, you know, yeah. for certain people within the yes. community. For sure. And and the other point I wanted to make too was that it's this a lot of emotional abuse and um, misuse of power is covert and implicit. It's not like someone standing up on the podium saying, okay, women, like you're going to be our subservient and you're going to be our helpers and we get to make all the choices, but it's, it's communicated in so many other little ways. Whereas, you know, in certain places, women and my mom is still a very firm believer and, and she grieves over this often that there's even churches modern churches now that say you know oh you can you can hang out you can be one of us you you can be with us but you can only get this far right because after that you're threatening right I think it's so interesting that you use the word covert to describe Mm -hmm. that kind of abuse because I use that word all the time when I'm trying to teach people about what abuse looks like because we all have these stereotypes that it's, again, this super obvious, very direct, you know, type of of language, and it's not. And if it was that direct, no one would buy it. 
it's insidious and it's really um yeah it's covert it's under the surface it's aimed at making people buy in and and believe it themselves absolutely and i mean when I did, I saw a counselor this last summer to help me sort through a lot of things. One of the main things I I really was just looking for some confirmation. She helped me kind of outline the the course that the relationship took. And she did confirm for me, yes, Alana, this is a man who, when he gets into intimate relationships will become abusive. That was huge. That was like, it released so many, so much guilt and shame that I had been carrying around. Um, But my point is that in line with what you're talking about, that covert nature of it, um, it can happen to anybody, you know, like it's not, it, it's nobody is immune from, um, it's human nature. It's the way that our brains, unfortunately, have been wired. It's like a little bit of, it's like, it's like, you know, these people have find a way to hack into the human brain to become, become master manipulators. Um, and it has a lot to do with intermittent reinforcement and, you know, oh, uh, I'll love you. I'll give you these little rewards like here and there 10% of the time and you'll be starving for it the rest of the time. But I w- he never called me a, like, actually, no, he did call me a bitch one time. But it, was, it wasn't like, I, my brain didn't recognize it as abuse, I think, because like you're saying, like we've been trained and socialized to believe that abuse is very overt. It's very like, oh, you know, the only people that are in abusive relationships are people with, with bruises on their bodies mm-hmm. or um, where the man comes home, gets like wildly drunk and just tears you apart verbally, like these, these really intense um, arguments. We didn't have very much of that. It was mostly, it was these little underhanded comments that just start to... Um, eat away at your sense of self. And um, the biggest tactic I think that he used was gaslighting. Mm. And, you know, that's no, unless you really have experienced it, it's hard to know what that feels like. And even if somebody was watching it from the outside, sometimes they may not actually even see it. Oh, I I talk about that all the time with people about how, because of that sort of insidious nature of abuse, it's hard for the person in the relationship to know what's going on. And it's really hard from people from the outside looking in to know what's going on. And that's how abusers prefer it. If they can get the desired amount of power and control that they want without ever having to lay a finger on their partner, then why would they risk escalating? It's it's the path of least resistance. You know, Um, if if you can manipulate someone to the point where they're not even going to stand up for themselves because they really do think that it's their fault or nothing's wrong or they're overreacting or whatever it might be, then that's like the best case scenario for this other person. They don't have to try that hard. Totally. All they have to do is make these little comments here and there and you're left feeling very powerless. Yeah. I, um, a really good example of that I heard once was someone talking to me about how her partner would, um, control what she wore, but it wasn't ever Mm -hmm. like, you're not allowed to wear that, which it can look like, but she would, you know, get ready. They would come out of the bedroom and he would say things like, oh, is that what you want to wear? All right, then if that's what you yeah. want to wear. And then she was like, shit, you know, and then would go back and change. And it's like, yeah. it's the same motive from that person. It's the same outcome. Right. They're still getting you to change, but they're doing it by being really manipulative and not like necessarily as, as like overtly demanding as people would think that that would look like. 
Exactly. And I think that's a big part of the reason my brain wasn't ping- picking up on the abuse for very long, because like you said, like it, it never came out like that. Yeah. It wasn't like you're fat or you don't look good. It was always like, well, could you try this? Or what about that? Or maybe you should think about doing this differently. Mm. Like a little bug in my ear right. that was always like, oh, what would he think? Mm. What would he think if I walked out looking like this? What would he think if I talked to that person? What would he think if I started this new project and it limited, I allowed it to limit, you know, myself in a lot of ways, even, you know, not if I, you know, wanted to start a new contract or start teaching at a new studio, he would never initially, he would join in on being excited and then find little ways to poke holes Mm -hmm. in all those. Yeah. So your world was becoming smaller. Your choices were becoming more narrow. Yeah. Because again, that survival, that's the, that, that was the path of least resistance for me. Um, Oh, I was basing all of my choices on how he, he would react. And that, I think that was uh, a really shitty place to be in. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It makes you see why it's so hard for people to get out of abusive relationships. You know, that age old question, why didn't you just leave? Well, you can't leave if you don't know where the exit is. Right. And you can't leave yeah. if you don't know that you should leave. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like yeah. the ultimate mind well, fuck. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, like, oh, this is this is normal. Right. And yeah. so many of those patterns mimic normal behaviors, but yeah. but just they're done in a way that's controlling and manipulative. Um, For sure. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna flash forward a little bit, and here you are on the podcast speaking out about your experience, and I'd like to know more about what healing has looked like for you. Yeah. Um, so when I first left, um, I moved in. I moved in with a friend, and um, we were both at a point in our life where we we just needed support. And so it was a good opportunity to be in a roommate situation. And the first little while. I cried every morning, you know, I was still able to go to work and I was actually even taking a class at university that before I left him, he, I still remember him making comments, you know, Oh, you're not really going to university. It's like, anyways, you know, like I was taking a math class and I got up and ran every morning at five thirty AM. My dog and I would run down to the ocean and then I would come home shower and meditate. I was able to reestablish my meditation practice that I learned um, before I met him and wasn't really allowed to participate in mm-hmm. when I was with him because and that was something he wasn't a part of. Um, and yeah, so healing for me has looked like, yeah, I, I just cried every morning. There was so much built up energy that needed to come out that the best thing for me to do at that time was to do like really intense running interval training and, um, crying and meditating and journaling quite a bit. And, um, now, fast forward, it's almost been, yeah, it's been about just over a year and a bit now, but it's been such a transfer. 2018 was incredibly transformational and intense, like super, super intense. But I feel grateful because, not grateful for the experience, but grateful for the healing journey um, because it, it has allowed me to reestablish my connection back with the girl that I was mm. before the world told me that I needed to tone it down mm. before the world told me that, um, I needed it to be, you know, 
sugar and spice and everything nice. Um, that little girl, that 12 year old girl that, uh, didn't feel a lot of shame, didn't feel a lot of, um, guilt about carrying other people's expectations. That's really a beautiful way of putting that. Yeah. Like that reconnection to self. Yeah. Thank you. It's, um, and for me, meditation is, is, is a, a, it's an opportunity to remember. It's not so much bringing necessarily anything else. It's just connecting back into that, that deep, deep seed of whatever. I, I believe we all have something planted in us that is more than our bodies. Mm. Um, connecting back with that, that depth, that, that the thing that makes us exactly unique and only one of a kind. Um, for me, getting up every morning now and doing 10 minutes of meditation, that's my opportunity to take that little girl with me mm-hmm. every day, wherever I go. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yes. And had I not been through this, I mean, perhaps that wouldn't have happened, you know? So there are really beautiful parts to healing. And like I said, at the beginning is really messy. And um, some people in our, your life, if you're in that position and you're just kind of starting out, some people in your life, um, they're not going to be able to hold space for you as you go through that. And, and there's a grieving there. And I think that they still love you, but because of their own, where they're at in their own journey, it, you might sometimes experience some rejection because it's kind of human nature, I think, for, to kind of toe the line, and you know, for systems, for us, the systems that we were involved in to just want things to go back to the status quo. And in reality, we really are just rebuilding our personalities again from the ground up right. and it's going to, it's, it's going to shake up the subsystem, so to speak. Right. And just because someone might care about you or love you doesn't mean that they have any other advanced level of awareness or education around what the dynamic of intimate partner violence looks like, you know? Yeah. And so I think that the, because of that lack of information there's a lot of room for people to accidentally hurt those that they're trying to help because they don't know how to actually help or be there. Absolutely. And, and it it might be scary for them, you know, and I'm, you know, and that's why I started writing because I knew that with writing, I could let it all out. Mm -hmm. It could be all the darkest, all the um, nitty gritty details of what exactly had transpired between the two of us. And, and I started to learn that, you know, not everyone in our life is prepared to hear that and that's okay. And they still love us. Right. Yeah. We we often call the people, the loved ones, family member, friends of someone who's been through an abusive relationship. We call them like secondary survivors Mm. because them having to watch someone they care about go through something so traumatic can be traumatizing Mm. for them, you know? So there's, it's, it's complicated. It really is. But I love hearing that there's language being developed around that yes. because I think that's really important. Once we can develop a shared language yes. for how to, it's almost like Al-Anon, yes. you know, like families of, uh, of children with alcoholic parents right. and things like that. Like, like you said, like, um, you know, the programs have been developed to help them process what their parents were going through. Right. I would love more programs developed it's almost like domestic violence anonymous. Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be anonymous, but like 
like you said, it can traumatize, traumatize on multiple levels, not just the people who are directly affected by it. Right. And there are concentric circles there that influence an entire community, which is why it's important for whole communities to care about this issue because it does affect mm-hmm. everybody. It's not just about the two people in that dichotomy. It's about, you know, it, it's about the people who love them and then how they take that into the world. And, you know, it's just it's it's not good for for all of us. <laughs> I fully agree with you. And yeah, in my undergrad, I learned um, there's um, there's something called ecological systems mm-hmm. theory. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yes, so I know. I'm on the same page. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's that's one of the theories. So I have a child and youth care degree, and that was one. It's almost like social work, mm-hmm. but for like child and youth. And um, for whatever reason, that was one of the theories that my brain really yep. were presented with so many different ones that my brain was like, yes, this rings true. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we try to use yeah. that often at the organization I work at as well. Oh, yeah, awesome. yeah, it's such a good visual. It is. Too. It really is. It helps explain a lot. So I, I kind of want to wrap up because we're running out of time here, but I'd love to just end by asking you what you would want a survivor who's listening to this to hear, or is there something just kind of like a, a final closing thought or message for any survivor out there who's listening? I think it's really important for survivors to know that if they haven't shared their stories yet, they're still just as valuable. Mm. And if they're still in the situation that they don't feel that they can leave, that they're still as valuable as anyone who has left, that they're still as valuable as us here speaking about it. Anyone who's years out from having left, your worth is not determined by what stage in your journey you're at. Mm. Oh, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having yeah. me. This has been really great. Oh, good. Yeah. You've been an amazing guest and we're so lucky oh. to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. So we'll just kind of wrap up and have a good rest of your day. Okay. You yeah. too. Bye. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.